Hey everybody, my name is Ryan, pastor for Care and Recovery at our downtown church. If you are new to Midtown, we are glad that you are joining us. We wanna to get to know you, so I'd like to encourage you to go ahead and fill out the Connect card on our homepage. For all of us, I wanna keep you on the loop on what's happening around our church. Our virtual 101 Midtown class is starting on October 4th. This is a three-week class for anyone who seeks to become a member of our church. We'll cover the basics of how our church works, so whether you've just found us online or you've been coming around for a while but haven't yet taken the next step towards membership, we'd love for you to join us. We'll walk through the basics of who we are as a church, what we believe, and how we practice following Jesus together. You can sign up on our events page. Our next night of prayer and worship is on Sunday, September 27th at 7.30. It's going to be outdoors at our downtown campus. Bring along with you a book or two as we're partnering with teachers around Richland One and Urban Young Life to distribute books of all grade levels. Because of the pandemic, children have limited access to books due to a variety of different reasons. We see this as a very practical way that we can serve our city and hope you join us. Books can be dropped off at the donation table. And don't forget to bring a chair and wear your mask. Thanks for joining us today, and I hope to see you at our night of prayer and worship. You're listening to Teaching from Midtown Fellowship, a Jesus-centered family on mission in Columbia, South Carolina. If you're interested in finding out more about us, our family of churches, or how to partner with us, go to midtowncolumbia.com. Good morning. I'm Brandon Clements, one of the pastors at our Lexington Church. Go ahead and open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, verses 33 through 37. We've been going through the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, this is Jesus' first and most famous sermon. And in this sermon, he has all of this piercing insight into the human condition. Uh, so far, he's taught from the Old Testament law about murder and shown how hatred in our hearts is the real problem. He's taught about adultery and divorce and shown how lust of the heart is a massive problem causing hell on earth, as Bailey taught last week. And in today's passage, he's going to diagnose a problem that causes hell on earth and give us a solution. So follow along with me, starting in verse 33 of Matthew chapter 5. He says, again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. So here Jesus is following the same pattern he's been using in this teaching. Rather than scrapping moral concerns from the Old Testament given by God, he's been turning up the volume on them applying them in new and deeper ways. And in this passage, he's going to go in on the issue of integrity. Just to make sure we're on the same page, here's how I would define integrity. It's a state of whole and undivided moral uprightness gained by a fierce commitment to truth in word and action. It's being the same person around different groups of people, the same person when no one is watching It's seeing right as right and wrong as wrong, no matter who is doing what. It's having what you say you are line up with who you actually are, and what you say you will do line up with what you actually do. And to understand what Jesus is doing here, we need a little bit of context, because he's about to talk about the idea of taking oaths. And this is stating the obvious, but the pre-modern culture of ancient Israel was radically different from the society we live in today. So many things about our current world would absolutely freak them out, such as drones and airplanes and the iPhone and even old telephones for that matter and the Kardashians. I could go on and on. 
We all realize this to some degree, but sometimes you learn something that just really drives the difference home like I did recently. I was reading something a while back and somehow I just had this moment where I realized, wait, Jesus never had coffee. As a typical uninformed American, I just thought coffee had been around forever, but it turns out, nope, only since the 1500s or so. Now, theologically speaking, Jesus is the most complete human who's ever lived, not lacking in anything whatsoever. But I'll be honest, I did get unreasonably sad when I realized Jesus never had coffee. It really messed with my mental picture of his time with the disciples around a fire in the mornings. But anyways, you get the point. Vastly different cultures we're talking about here. So thinking about our subject for today, being oaths and integrity, it's important to realize how their culture operated because they did not have the legal documents we have. Signatures were not common. They did not have bank accounts and direct deposit like we have. Papyrus and ink were hard to come by, so business contracts were rare. They were an oral culture, not a written and contractualized culture like us. So most of their business dealings were verbal. So oaths played a crucial role and their lives and business dealings. It was the only method they had to certify that what they were saying was true or that they would indeed do what they said they were going to do. From a legal perspective, there also wasn't DNA evidence, there were no fingerprints, no video cameras, so in any sort of business or agreement or legal proceeding, someone's word was absolutely vital. So imagine if you were in a relationship with your mortgage lender, but there was no such thing as a contract or direct deposit. All you had to prove your liability was your promise, your word. So you say, I take a solemn oath to you, corporate, soulless Bank of America, that I will pay you $1,000 a month on the 15th every month for the next 30 years. Based on what you know about human beings in a society where there were few legal documents and valid ways to prove an agreement, when someone's word was all they had to go on, what do you think sometimes happened? Do you suppose that people sometimes simply didn't pay what they had said they would? Do you think it's possible that lenders would at times lie about what was owed to them and what had already been paid back? Basing a business deal off of words seems comical to us. Like, if all you have is someone's word, then you're the idiot. But for them, oaths were serious business. It was the primary method through which they could ensure people would operate with integrity. It was their version of a ratified promise, a contract. And oaths were needed because something we learn about humans from chapter 3 of the Bible is that we are deceitful. We're manipulative and cunning So oaths were a way to the best of their ability to root out the corruption and deceit inherent in the human heart. They restrained the evil our deceit causes and allowed business deals to happen and society to function. An oath allowed a manipulative, deceitful person who's not always trustworthy to essentially admit that and to say, but in this thing I'm taking an oath in, I will surely do this. Their culture took them seriously, and God took them very seriously. 
And depending on the seriousness of the interaction, people would take an oath by this stratified system they came up with. So Jesus will go on to mention taking an oath by your own head, by Jerusalem, by earth, by heaven. At the very top was taking a vow before God. That was when you knew someone was serious. So consider Leviticus 19 verse 12, which says, you shall not swear by my name falsely and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. In other words, if you try to certify your speech by swearing to God, you better keep that oath. Swearing by God in their culture was not a flippant gesture by someone who's probably lying. Rather, it was calling down the wrath and judgment of God upon themselves if they did not do what was promised. It meant a lot more than someone in our culture swearing to God. Here's Deuteronomy 23. It says, If you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay fulfilling it, for the Lord your God will surely require it of you, and you will be guilty of sin. But if you refrain from vowing, you will not be guilty of sin. You shall be careful to do what has passed your lips, for you have voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God what you have promised with your mouth. So again, if you vow or take an oath before God, you better keep that, lest you want to rain down the wrath of God and the wrath of the other person upon you. And unsurprisingly, people did not like the prospects of having God's wrath rain down on them. So they, they came up with this system where they said, well, uh, we'll we won't swear to God, instead we'll swear to heaven. Or we won't swear to heaven, instead we'll swear to earth. We won't swear to earth, we'll swear to Jerusalem. I won't swear to Jerusalem, I'll swear by my own head. So what was intended to be a method to restrain evil and ensure people operated according to their word, over time became this complex system. And rabbis had different thoughts on which oaths were binding and which ones maybe weren't binding after all. And in short, what was meant to be a means to train people to grow in integrity eventually became a system sinful people sought to manipulate, thus defeating the very purpose. So that's the problem. People are still acting like fallen humans. They lack integrity And the system or instructions God ordained in the Old Testament were insufficient to turn them into integrity image bearers. So Jesus has a solution, verse 34. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all. Again, for for us, this feels anticlimactic. Like, yeah, I was already not doing that. So I'll just keep not doing that. This part of the Bible is easy. But this would have actually struck them. Not take an oath? How do I make people believe I'm telling the truth? How do I conduct business? How do I operate in the society without this? Let's keep reading. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. So Jesus just does away with all of it, the whole system, all the stratified layers, the questions, the schemes. He aims for his followers to be the kind of people who don't need any of it. He says that the point of oaths was to turn people into people of integrity. So let's just do away with oaths altogether and actually be straightforward people of integrity. 
And he ends with this, instead of continuing in this rubric of oath-taking, be radically different from your culture and simply let your yes be yes and your no be no. What Jesus is teaching here is that if you are a Christian, your word should be better than a contract. Your yes should be more rock solid than someone else's oath. Your agreements and promises should be more secure than any signature or threat of punishment could ever produce. You might have one, but you should not need a contract requiring you to pay your mortgage or your rent because you said you would. You agreed to. You don't need the paper and pen. You might put your hand over a Bible in a courtroom, but you don't need to because you will tell the truth. Potential consequences of breaking your marital covenant may loom over your head, but you shouldn't need the threat of consequences to keep you from an affair because you said you would be faithful. And your word as a Christian is better than a promise. You might have any number of binding agreements, but if you are in Christ, the reality is you should be growing into the kind of person who doesn't need any other agreement other than your word. Your yes means yes, your no means no. And Jesus says that anything more comes from evil. It opens the door for manipulation and deceit. When he says anything more, that means no more overpromising, no more half-truths or coded language or contingencies or hedging or legally small print in your mind. Let your yes mean yes and your no mean no. If you can't say yes or no, don't say either. And notice the weight of Jesus' word choice here at the end. He doesn't say anything more than this is unhealthy. He says anything more than this is evil. This lines up with what Jesus teaches about himself and Satan. In John 8, Jesus calls Satan the father of all lies. So every untruth in some way is traced back to Satan's effort to dismantle God's intentions for the world. In John 14, Jesus says that he is the way, the truth, and the life. So Jesus is truth. Satan is untruth. Jesus is reality. Satan is unreality. Jesus is whole and undivided. Satan is divided and duplicitous. And the connection being made here is that the words we speak are continually lining up with one or the other. Our speech picks a side. Our words either correspond with reality by being fruitful and truthful and clear and direct, or they help build unreality by being manipulative and obfuscating and false or confusing. And all throughout scriptures, one of the descriptors of God is that he is faithful, that he keeps his promises. He does exactly what he says he will. So as Christians, when we don't operate with integrity or keep our promises, we are actually lying about God. We're misrepresenting him. When our words and actions are unreliable, we are conforming more to the image of Satan than the image of Jesus. We are never more like Satan than when we lie. Lying is synonymous with spreading Satan's kingdom. Jesus came to rescue us from the chaos of untruth and disorder and all of the games that our dishonesty requires. 
Let your yes be yes, he says. Let your no be no. Let your speech perfectly and clearly align with your intentions and with reality. So he's teaching here that integrity is central to honoring God and the flourishing of humanity. You cannot honor God or faithfully follow Jesus without walking in integrity. Jesus is so pure and undivided that he exposes anything that's false. Lies and manipulation have no place in his presence. His very being melts them away and cuts us to the heart. You'll always hide and run from God when you refuse to walk in integrity or live a double life. Integrity is central to human flourishing. We already know this from experience, and it's highly likely that some of your biggest wounds in life came from a lack of integrity in someone close to you, whether that be a parent or a spouse or a friend or whoever. Integrity is essential for any human relationship to thrive and be healthy and whole. So the question this text asks of us is, are you a person of integrity? Do your words line up with your intentions? Does your yes mean yes? Does your no mean no? Do you say what you mean and do you mean what you say? We don't have the same specific mechanisms that they did, but the heart issues are the exact same. And a good bit of the marital counseling we do is exactly about this, where a couple gets to a place where words don't have meaning anymore. One spouse says something and the other doesn't give it any weight. The couple is talking, but it's hard to know what is actually true. And of course, intimacy is impossible when trust is broken and when every word is questionable. In any healthy relationship, I have to believe what you say and trust that you will be honest with me. That has to be a mutual agreement we have. And if I wonder if you're going to do something, my litmus test should be, well, have you told me you would? And if you've given me your word that you will, then I have no doubt. Because you said you would. I have to be able to trust you. You said you would, so I will believe you. That's how relationships are built and breakdowns happen when that's not in play. And if that doesn't happen, we have no hope of a meaningful relationship or community. To take our membership covenant as an example, we set a high bar for membership up front because we believe the Bible does. We clearly lay out expectations. We believe that all of us committing to do things like submit ourselves under the authority of Scripture and abiding in God's Word and confessing sin and tithing and serving are, and serving are all kinds of things that will shape us into the kind of people God designed us to be. We all give our word at the end of the class that, yes, I will do these things. And then we re-up them every year or so. And us giving our word before God and to each other is what allows us to become a beautiful counterculture, a God-honoring community. But if I printed off a list and handed it to every missionary member at our three churches right now and said, okay, grade yourself using this list, I bet a good chunk of us would have some that were like, uh-oh, I, I said I would do that. That's dangerous for a number of reasons, but today's reason is because you said you would. And your lack of follow-through is at least one point of evidence that you are becoming the kind of person who is lacking in integrity. And I bet if you had access to someone's life who stopped following Jesus and left our church, you could go back to that membership covenant and say, they stopped doing this one years ago, they stopped doing this one and this one. 
And over time, a lack of integrity came to fruition in their life. If we're going to have a healthy church, we're going to have to be people of integrity. And integrity starts small and is wide-ranging. So, for example, are there chores you've agreed to that you don't do? If so, that's a lack of integrity. Are there responsibilities at your job that you intentionally shirk because you don't like to do them and you hope someone else will? That's a lack of integrity. Do you overpromise and underdeliver? That's a lack of integrity. Do you owe someone money and you don't have a plan to pay them back? That's an integrity issue. Do you act and speak completely differently around different groups of people? Are you one person with that group and another person with that group? It's a lack of integrity. How about this one? Do you have a bad habit of bailing on things or people? Halfway committing to something, knowing that if something better comes along or if you just don't feel like it, you'll just ghost or back out last minute. I would imagine many of us have people in our lives who will commit to doing something or being somewhere and all of a sudden, you notice some telltale sign in them. But instead of engaging forthrightly, maybe they just go quiet on the text or group me thread. They haven't told you yet, but you know exactly what's going to happen. They are not going to do what they said they would. They are not going to be where they said they would be. They may tell you five minutes beforehand, if at all. And that's an integrity issue. Of course, things come up every once in a while, but if you are following Jesus, you should not be known for being flaky and noncommittal. It should not be the case that other people know what you are going to do before you tell them. They should not have to text you and say, hey, I'm sensing your telltale signs. Can I just go ahead and assume you won't be there? It should not have to happen. As we wrap up today, I want to just give us two different ways we might need to apply this concept to our lives based on some insight we have from pastoring our people for 15 years or so. Uh, so two quick applications you might want to consider. Number one is actually some communication training that we do in premarital counseling that's very applicable to integrity. Uh, and the second one is actually a personality typing that may expose some ways we need to apply this. So we'll start with number one. So tool number one, uh, three steps for integrity and communication. Because most of us know that communication can become this awful and tiresome guessing game where you always wonder if someone really means what they say or if you can trust their words. So here's what we encourage people to adopt as their three-step plan for integrity and communication. Number one is say what you think. Say what you think. Simply put, it's not someone else's job to read your mind. It's not your spouse's job, not your best friend's, not your boss's job. It is no one on planet Earth's job to read your mind, not even your mama. If you ever utter the words, you should have known what I wanted, you are wrong. No, they shouldn't have known because you did not tell them. This is on you. If you didn't tell them, it's your fault. No hints. Say it clearly, out loud, with words. Say what you think. Number two is say what you mean. Your words should correspond with reality. So if you say something, it needs to be because you mean it and you intend to stick by what you said. If you don't actually mean the words you're saying, don't let them come out of your mouth. 
If your inner reality and true feelings are one thing, but the words you use create a different reality, then you are on team Satan and you're gonna cause confusion and chaos in your relationships with your double-minded speech. No matter what your motive was originally. We've seen this with, before with people who leave our church or life group over conflict. And when follow-up conversations happen, the person says, I'm leaving because of this thing that happened two years ago. And the other person, people involved will be like, you mean that thing that we had all those conversations about and reconciled over and where you said with your words that, that we were good and that we were reconciled? You mean that? And the person will be like, yeah, that thing. Because they didn't mean what they said and they didn't say what they meant and heartache follows that. And then third, trust the other person to speak the truth. This is simply the concept that if we are in relationship together, we commit to base our responses and actions on the actual words we say. Not what I think you may have meant, not what I know you must feel or must have meant, but cold, hard words. If you say you were good with something, I no longer worry about it because I believe you. There are no games, no trying to guess what the other person is thinking or if there's hidden meaning behind words. If they say it, then trust it's exactly what they meant and go on happily about your day and think about something pleasant. Now, real quick, how amazing does this sound? If we could all do these three things all the time, how joyful and free would we be? We'd have so much time left over to think about pleasant things. We'd avoid so much drama and confusion and what ifs. This is what Jesus is saying. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Then go on about your drama-free, blissful day and the glory of reality. This is what Jesus wants us to walk in. All right, lastly, tool number two. Good versus kind. This is oversimplified, but it's a personality typing um, that certain thinkers have given. Uh, it's a spectrum of people on a range that runs from good uh, on one side to kind on the other side. So good people care about what they think is the truth, and they tell it like it is. And kind people tend to elevate people and their feelings above the truth in an effort to not hurt feelings. Both sides have weaknesses and strengths. They're just different. But a good summation of them when it comes to conflict would be that good people stand toe-to-toe -to -toe with you, whereas kind people tend to tiptoe around feelings. And to illustrate these two categories is very easy for me because all I have to do is tell you about, about my two daughters. I have a picture of them right here. Uh, my oldest, Sully, over there uh, with the horse uh, is kind with a capital K. What this means is that she is by nature very concerned about other people. She's overly considerate of others and overly concerned about their feelings. When she was four or five, she had this really cute but also very cringeworthy moment where she came up to my wife and hugged her and she said, Mommy, I love you so much, there's no room for me. She has one particular friend who has a habit of asking for her things, like her jewelry or her toys. And we noticed that every time Sully would play with this friend, she would come home missing something. Now, many people need to be taught to care about others more than themselves. But with Sully, we are having to teach her not to give away all of her things to that friend. Because she would. 
She absolutely would. And when we talk to her about it, she says, but what if she gets mad at me? Well, Sully, it can be really difficult to draw out what she truly thinks and feels. There are all these layers of complexity because when you ask her something, she's trying to navigate what you may be thinking and feeling and what you might want to hear, and everything gets shaded by that. So it can almost be a Herculean effort to figure out what she actually thinks. Our youngest daughter, Isla, on the other hand, you never have to wonder what she thinks. She's the, the cute one over here. She would be way more on the good side of the spectrum. I have no worries whatsoever about her giving away all of her things to a persistent friend. I do, however, worry about the persistent friend. Isla has two older siblings, and I fully foresee there being times where I ask her to go handle some business for them. For Isla, what's right is right and what's wrong is wrong, and she is not worried in the slightest about your feelings. She may not even be aware that you have feelings, and if, if you do, to her, they are small and inconsequential things compared to what she thinks is right or wrong. So Sully will apologize for things that are not her fault whatsoever, Isla will refuse to apologize for things she absolutely should for. When Isla was a toddler, she would literally sit in timeout for 30 minutes when all she'd have to do to get out is apologize, but she just refused. So we have different challenges. We will have to teach Isla how Jesus motivates her to care about others more than herself and definitely how to admit wrong. But we have to teach Sully that she has a self and that operating in the truth is vital to being healthy, and the truth sometimes hurt feelings. All of that to say, a large swath of you hearing this might identify more so with Sully than with Isla, because you are kind. And that is beautiful in so many ways. You care about others so well. You're gentle. You lead in so many capacities, and you help our church family. But when it comes to our topic for today in particular, being people of forthright integrity, being kind can often put you at a disadvantage. Because in the words of Sully, what if they get mad at me? And so what happens often, especially in church circles where certain virtues tend to get highlighted over others, is that kindness can actually lead to cowardice. Being kind can elevate being, being non-confrontational. It can avoid hurt over the truth. It can cause you to not say things you need to say. I say this, by the way, as Sully's father, the one that gave her most of the kind genes she has, the one who has been guilty in too many ways of exactly what I'm talking about. And I've seen heartbreaking effects of a kind personality that in reality isn't kind because it can forsake the truth to save feelings and ends up causing harm in the end. Now, you good people out there, you have plenty of issues too, and maybe we'll come after you in a different sermon. I have other things I could say. But for today, I want to say a special word for uh, the kind people out there like me. That kind people often don't realize we're doing this, but we actually practice lying frequently. 
kind people often don't say what we mean because we don't want to ruffle feathers. We avoid saying the hard thing because we don't want the drama. We don't want people to be mad at us. So we acclimate ourselves to people-pleasing so much that we become liars without even realizing it. Honestly, we can almost even spiritualize lying in some misguided attempt to love others. What our good friends realize that we often don't is that there's a profound difference between peacekeeping and peacemaking. Peacekeeping is what kind people tend to do. We just try to sweep things under the rug, tiptoe around things, and keep tension down. But sometimes you have to go to war in order to get peace. When the gospel actually frees us up to be peacemakers, to be direct and forthright and truthful with one another, even when it hurts, knowing that Jesus has given us the resources we need to deal with all of that. We can forgive and forbear and reconcile and come out stronger on the other side with true peace won through necessary conflict, not a fake peace built on pretense. And just to be clear on this, kind people, uh, there are many voices out there that would try to get you to put your foot down. A stereotypical trajectory for a kind person is to get hopped up on pop psychology for a year or two and then just come out with guns blazing. I've learned that when a person does that, you better watch out. I don't want that for you. That's not what we're saying. I don't want you to put your foot down. I want you to have integrity. We are still called to speak with gentleness and kindness, just in very direct and forthright ways. And yes, sometimes telling it like it is means you are a jerk, but sometimes telling it like it is means you're full of integrity and love and grace. Jesus' call to live lives of integrity is for all of us, but let this be a a special challenge to those of us in the camp uh, of being kind. Because the health of our relationships is dependent on yes, truly meaning yes, and no, truly meaning no. On our words corresponding with reality, not what we would like reality to be to avoid tension. And without intending to, we can actually contribute to chaos and unreality with the hollowness of our words. So as a final call to us, let our words be weighty. Let them ring with the truth of God. And let all of us grow to be people of integrity because we have a God who keeps his word, who keeps his promises, the most important of which was to save us from sin and Satan and ourselves through a Messiah. And he kept that promise with the blood of his only son. He did exactly what he said he would do at the greatest possible cost to himself, all to buy us from the darkness of unreality and deceit and transplant us into the kingdom of his beloved son. So let's join him in that kingdom of light with every word we speak. Please pray with me. Uh, Father, thank you for your call for us to be people of integrity, and we desperately need your help to obey this. Uh, we need your Spirit's supernatural help because uh, our natures are, um, are deceitful and manipulative. We have all kinds of different issues on this spectrum, but uh, the bottom line is we need your help. 
Um, so thank you for what you've done to send Jesus to die for our sins and our many failures to be people of integrity. Uh, thanks that all of them are put up on Jesus on the cross and were paid for uh, once and for all. Thanks for defeating our lack of integrity on the cross and through the resurrection. And thank you that you send your Holy Spirit to supernaturally help us in all of the ways we need help with this. So please do so. Help us to realize our need for this help uh, and, and give it like you always do and grow us into people of integrity. Thank you for Jesus. We love you. Amen.